0: As we have said multiple times throughout this series, the book of Exodus is driven primarily by a concern on God's part to make his name known. So whenever you read anything in the book of Exodus, if you have any sort of confusion about what this this particular passage that you're looking at means, always remember that you can that you can go sort of as a backstop to the fact that this book in its overarching theme is making God's name known God wants to reveal who he is his character his ways so that a lost humanity can look to him as to a beacon our God is on a missionary journey to make his name known that he might reconcile a lost humanity to himself. And we saw that that principle is is implicit in why the tabernacle itself, the the open 24-7 tabernacle that doesn't have a door on the front of the courtyard, why that opening faces east, facing the direction of an estranged, exiled people, saying that the way for sinners to come home is open. God in his works and redemptive history has created a people with whom he desires to relate. Isn't that amazing? That the infinitely great God of the universe who lacks and needs nothing wants to relate with us. That's astounding. That we existed from eternity past in God's mind and God created us to have a relationship with us. That is amazing. So God redeemed the people of Israel out of Egypt. And in Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6. We, were, we are taught the, the basic promise given to the people as a, as a corporate body. Namely that if they will keep the covenant. They will be God's treasured possession in all the earth. For everything is the Lord's. And secondly, that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In essence, what's happening here is God is saying that you will be my people and you will be my co-laborers. That as I am making my name famous in the earth, as I am spreading the message that reconciliation with me is possible, you, Israel, will be my ambassadors. and God is doing that even now which is why in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 those promises those indicative statements are applied to us that we are a kingdom of priests a holy nation and if there's any if there's any remaining doubt as to what the purpose of being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation is for The Holy Spirit, through Peter, gives us the statement of purpose when he says that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who saved us. So God is on a missionary journey. And in Israel, he began building up that temple. And we have been called alongside, which is why God's word says that we are being made into a temple of living stones. God is building up a holy people to make his name famous. Now what does that have to do with this passage? Well, remember, we're in the context of of the, the tabernacle which is going to explain how a holy God can reside in and with a sinful people and then Exodus 32 comes along and shows how the people fundamentally cannot keep the covenant they couldn't wait forty days they committed adultery on their honeymoon they couldn't wait at all and they fall into idolatry which we learned in Romans 1 is really the story of humanity that, that human nature to that fallen aspect of our condition where we are prone to going after other gods is such an intrinsic part of what it means to be a fallen human being that God has to deal with that and so Moses has been showing us and teaching us what a mediator what an intercessor does for his people And here God reconfirms or recommits to the covenant he made at Sinai. What happens here in in verse 10, it says, behold, I am making a covenant. And you can be tempted to think that what's happening is God is starting over. He says, I'm making a covenant. Well, really what he's doing is restating his commitment to the covenant made from chapters 19 to 24. In essence, what God is doing is calling off the divorce. And we see this by means of God restating in these verses. He restates, he pulls from various portions of his redemptive plan revealed in Exodus. And by restating in part... we're we're taught that what he means is it's a reaffirmation of the whole. So he reaches back to Exodus 12 where the Passover happens. and, And you may recall that it was in those... Verses that we learned about the redemption of the firstborn and the need to keep those holy feasts. So he reminds them that those things are still in effect. He reminds them of some of the Ten Commandments to show that they're still in effect. He reminds them of some of the laws from the book of the covenant in in Exodus chapters 21 to 23. So he pulls from all this stuff and he reaffirms it to let them know that everything that he had done in chapters 19 to 24 remains in effect. God is gracious to reaffirm His covenant. Now, when we think of the Old Covenant, we're oftentimes tempted to think in terms of those hundreds of rules. All these do's and do not's, the thou shalt and the thou shalt not's. And we can end up missing the forest for the trees. That really, the fundamental command of the Old Covenant is to worship. That is the fundamental command. You see it here. Where, in, faced with everything that God had commanded the people, he presents this restatement in terms that are primarily concerned with their worship of him. The three principal commands in this chapter that that sort of inform or shape the, the remaining rules that are stated are in verses 14, 17, and 21, where basically God restates the first, second, and fourth commandment. You shall not worship any other God, in verse 14. In verse 17, you shall not make any idol. And verse 21, six days you shall labor and keep the Sabbath. And the rest of these commands, as you read them, focus on how you, it is that you keep those three major commandments. Because worship and how we relate to God is the primary concern of the Old Covenant. So the laws mentioned in verses 10 through 26 are concerned then in, this, in the scope of worship they're concerned with protecting and reinforcing israel's identity as a worshiping people protecting and reinforcing israel's identity because the threats to that identity are real and they are present so for example in verses eleven to seventeen you see god protecting their identity and the worshiping nature of the community by calling on a ban of anything related to the people of the land and it's stated specifically so that they won't fall into worshiping their gods they're not to enter into any sort of covenants or or treaties with them because as soon as you have a treaty with a people there's cross-pollination of culture second you're not to engage in any of the religious practices And so you're to tear down every religious artifact that they've left behind, lest you be tempted to engage in those practices. And third, you're not to intermarry with them. Because as they come into the community in marriage, they will influence you to turn to their gods. And then in verse 18 to 24, you see God reinforcing their identity as a covenant people with the commandments to celebrate the feasts to remember to come and, and, and dedicate the firstborn, to redeem them. So God is both protecting and reinforcing their identity. And we're told why in verse 14, because God is a jealous God. God will protect his relationship with his bride. And that's how we have to understand it. We have a hard time hearing of God's jealousy because when we think of jealousy, we think, we think of insecure pettiness, really. That's what comes to mind most naturally, is this insecure pettiness that can't tolerate, tolerate even the appearance of, of, a, of, a, of a rival in, in some sphere. But with God, you really need to think of it in terms of fierce protectiveness. He is fiercely protective of his relationship and the way that you have to understand this is in terms of a marriage the Old Testament goes on to speak of God's relationship with his people as a marriage but you see it implied even here where in the three verses following verse 14 15 16 and 17 three times going to idolatry is presented in the language of adultery God is fiercely protective of his covenant with his people. He's fiercely protective of that relationship for at least three reasons. First, there's his honor as a great savior. He is is a mighty and lofty king who comes alongside and finds a dirty, filthy street urchin and redeems that person and brings that person into his house and makes that thing and elevates that thing to his bride. He is an honorable and dignified king who will not tolerate to have his honor besmirched by an ungrateful bride. But second of all, he's concerned about our good. And he knows that he is the best thing in the universe. God, is, There is nothing greater than God. And so if God wants to give you the best thing, then what does God have to give you? Himself. And you turning to anything other than God amounts to you turning to something that's not as good. And you will suffer for it. And third, he's zealous for his missionary enterprise, his mission. That he is redeeming a people and building a kingdom. And he will protect his people as they engage in making his name famous in the nation. So he is zealous for his glory. And because of that, he is jealous for his covenantal relationship with us. And he will protect, he will discipline now, that leads us all to the question, if, if these commands are centered around worship and about how worship sort of shapes and protects our identity and how worship also reinforces our identity as a people, then what exactly is, is our theology of worship? What, what are we doing when we worship? What is that? What, what's the reason for it all? Purity of worship is, is essential because true worship, true worship is, is the praise that emanates from adoration and devotion that comes both freely and joyously out of a desire for communion. That's what true worship is. Okay? Worship is the adoration of that which we find to be lovely and satisfying we worship all the time pure worship is essential for enjoying God and enjoying God is essential for relating rightly with God so essential it is that Deuteronomy 28 this is the Old Testament law you know the law the law itself says that if we will not worship joyfully with gladness of heart it's the same as not having worshiped that's what he says and so God wants his name to be famous so that we will look to him as the fount of all of our blessing now if God is amazing and he's wonderful and he's beautiful if he's satisfying if he's trustworthy then then how can we have divided or 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 wavering allegiance to him how we are so prone to doing that and so he sets up these these parameters to to purge from our presence and our thoughts anything that would have us have divided loyalties because if we're gonna find God most satisfying we have to indeed find him the most which we can't do if we're chasing after other gods. The loyalty of their hearts must be guarded because it's out of the loyalty of their hearts comes adoration and devotion and praise. And that's when they see that God is supremely satisfying in all things. And we worship God. God commands worship. He does. But have you ever thought for a second that The reason we worship is not because God needs it. Our worship, there's no way that our songs of praise resound louder than the songs of the myriad of angels around his throne. Okay? God doesn't have some itch that he can't scratch, and we have to scratch his back for him. God doesn't have some sort of neediness that we meet for Him. God is supremely satisfied and He's supremely content. So as we come and approach God in worship, He's not asking us to make Him feel better. He's asking for us to come and find Him satisfying and Him, our contentment, as He gives us Himself. Have you ever thought about how worship then is primarily for us? We worship God and we praise Him. But in our praising, we are blessed and we are edified and we are built up and we are transformed. There's this strange truth in all of Scripture, that there's a profound correlation to the effect that what we worship has on us. We become like what we worship. Think about Exodus 32. What do the people make? A bull, a wild animal. And within mere verses, what are they acting like? like wild animals that need to be reined in. Okay? Listen to me very closely. Romans 1, to go back to that great clear passage, Romans 1 teaches us that falling into idolatry is at its core an exercise in God replacement. And what happens then is we who were made to relate rightly to God in worship and adoration, we were created to find our rest in Him. We turn away and we inherently twist that link between us and God and we distort it. And then we were created to be lords over creation. And instead we twist and we pervert that link. Where now we have the things that are created that become our functional masters and our gods. So we relate distortedly both to God and to man. And as we have theological perversion, theological distortion, that manifests itself in ethical and interpersonal distortion and perversion. Do you see why Romans 1 illustrates that with with an appeal to that, exa- that, that example of homosexuality. Because it represents taking something and twisting it. And then we learn in Romans 8. That those whom God foreknew. He has predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son which is reiterated in Colossians 3, that we are being renewed in knowledge after the likeness of Jesus. So what you have here are two opposite truths, that if you worship idols, you will become like them. And as we worship the Lord, we become like Him. You are being conformed into some image, That image depends upon what you are worshiping. You want to know why God is so zealous for the true worship of His people? Because what you worship changes who you are. And if you worship that which is no God, you will become a monster. And if you worship that which is all-surpassingly beautiful, all-surpassingly lovely, Guess what you will become? Lovely. What are you worshiping? Do you guard your devotion and loyalty to God as if your life depends upon it? Because if you stop worshiping God, or if you worship God in a pretense, when really you're worshiping your ego, or your retirement plan, or your kids, or your sports team, or whatever... You are relating wrongly then to creation and to your Creator. And that twisted, perverted makeup will affect your soul. So, what aggravates you? What sets off your trigger temper or your, your proneness to worry? Look there and do the radical heart surgery if necessary to, to, to get rid of those idols. So that nothing will keep you from seeing the loveliness of your Creator's face. And, and some people wonder why the, the, recount, the story of Moses and his, and his face shining, what that has to do with this. It has everything to do with it. It has everything to do with, with the transformative effect of worshiping and encountering and being satisfied by God. Yes, in its immediate context, the point of Moses' face was so that the people would know that whenever they saw him and his face is shining, that God was speaking through Moses. That they were, that they were encountering the man of God. So take him seriously. And he puts a veil on his face for two reasons. One, because they're scared. And yeah, Moses wants them to be a little bit scared when he's when he's given God's Word, so that's why he shows his face, but then he covers his face so they won't be scared of him all the time. But secondly, we learn from Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, is he didn't want the people to see that the glory faded and that he didn't get it recharged again until he went back in to see the Lord. And he didn't want them questioning Why is the glory, does that mean that God has left us? But we know from Paul that the reason it faded was because this covenant itself was destined to fade. That the new covenant was coming. But still what we have here at its core is Moses getting a foretaste of what is an eschatological or an end times, an ultimate reality unveiling of what humanity is meant to be. how bright can light be I was reading this week and and I and I came upon I'm sorry I was reading which led me to a video and and I was I I was amazed at these stories of these US service personnel who had who I think rather foolishly by our government had had been very close they were part of nuclear tests in the fifties and they were talking about how the explosion or the, the light emitted at the explosion was so bright that even with their eyes closed and their hands in front of their faces the light was so bright that with through their closed eyes they could see the bones they could see the x-ray of the bones in their hands how bright Can light be? Moses looked like he was on fire. We see in Revelation 1, the risen Christ in His glory, it says that His face shone like the sun at full strength. And His eyes were like two flames of fire. And of course we got a prefiguration of that. In the Gospels with the Transfiguration, did we not? Where they get a glimpse of the brilliance of the divine glory and its strength. And I think there's something of this in Acts chapter 6, the last verse, right before Stephen launches into his sermon, that's gonna, or his, yeah, it's a sermon, and it's gonna get him killed. And it says the Sanhedrin is gathered around him, so they're a semicircle gathered around him, and it says they were in awe because his face looked like the face of an angel. I don't think that means he had some quaint, cute, innocent expression, it was brilliant. And eschatologically, both Daniel in the Old Testament and Matthew. Matthew records Jesus' words in the new, it says, "This is what we will be like in the new Earth." It says that those who are righteous will shine like the sun. Because we will be refracting and reflecting back the glory of God that we will be experiencing in full, un- unfettered, unmeasured fullness. that future hope that future glory how will it feel to radiate the glory of God in its fullness does that doesn't excite you that not only not only do we not go to hell but we get to inherit a body like the resurrected Christ that that can withstand the full glory of God so that we shine like the Sun that's amazing and as awesome as that is it's true that in Scripture that that future hope of literally shining takes on a moral character as as we in this world engage in the adoration and in the communion with God we are transformed more and more into his likeness, which is why the psalmist in Psalm 34 says, those who seek God are radiant. That doesn't mean people are shining right now. And Paul in Philippians 2 speaks of this crooked and perverse generation among whom we shine like lights. Brothers and sisters, there is a transformative effect to adoring God. When you find God supremely satisfying, it has an effect on you. It has an effect on your disposition. It has an effect on your outlook. It has an effect on your manner. Indeed, it has an effect on your countenance. So brothers and sisters... Are you excited for the eschaton, the end times reality? If so, then be excited to be in God's presence now. Delight in him. Seek his face earnestly that he would transform you inside and out until finally in the eschaton we shine like the sun. Let's pray.